Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. All right, enough with announcements. Why don't you open your Bible? We're in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. I'll give you a moment to do that. And we are in a series called The Beginning of God's Story, The Beginning of God's Story. We want to welcome everybody online. If you're listening to us on uh, Apple or on the web, and we're glad that you joined us. Don't forget, you can always go there and listen to the teachings that you're missing. And you can hear those on our website. If you have an Android, we now have an Android app for you, so you can check that out as well. Now, we had something called prayer culture. Hey, guys, glad you're here. We, um, we had this, this thing called prayer culture, right? How many of you enjoy prayer culture? Was last Wednesday night just unbelievable? incredible with the team of worship that we have. And so we've kind of taken a break for two weeks, which was kind of refreshing for me because uh, I could take a break from preparing. But we, uh, we've gone through that. And thank you for everybody that showed up and have been praying over all the needs of the church. It was a wonderful time. But three weeks ago, I always like to do a recap. We were in chapter 22. And three weeks ago, what we saw, and I have it up on the screen, is we found and covered three prophetic signs, you remember, in the scripture that pointed to the crucifixion of Jesus that was to come much, much later than this story that we covered in Genesis. And I just kind of want to just highlight those because it, it, there's, there's prophecy all throughout the Bible, isn't there? of the coming of Christ, and you can find that everywhere. And this, this particular uh, uh, chapter 22 had three prophecies of the coming of Christ, and usually when we see the prophecies, we know about Jesus' clothes and garment. We know about those found in Psalms and other places, but I, I bet you were surprised when you saw a prophecy about Jesus coming in Genesis because we just don't normally don't look there. But the, the thing is, is that we had three prophecies. The first one was location. We learned that Mount Moriah and Golgotha were the same location 2,000 years apart where Abraham brought his son Isaac to sacrifice him. And this is the same place Golgotha was the very same location where Jesus, where God would sacrifice his only son Jesus on that same location. The second thing that we noticed was that there was a substitutional sacrifice. You remember, uh, Abraham, he had the knife up in the air, didn't he? And he was ready to, to kill his son. And at the last second, Abraham, wait, look, God has provided a sacrifice. It was a ram. And so there was a sacrifice provided. And you know, God sacrificed his son it was a substitute for our sin, and there was a sacrifice from the ram to the lamb. And then finally, there was a symbolic piece about the wood. You remember that Abraham took a, a donkey and a couple men, but he, he asked his son to carry the wood, and his son carried that wood on that journey all the way up to that hill, and he put the wood on the altar. Remember, Isaac was like, Dad? Who's going to be, who are we going to sacrifice as a burnt offering unto the Lord? And literally out of obedience, Isaac climbed on top of that wood knowing that he would be the sacrifice. He was honoring his father. Now that's hard to understand today. We'd probably be thrown in jail. But the, 
the, the interesting thing is, is that Jesus himself, he was made to carry his wood on his back to that hill at Golgotha. And it was at the same location. And so we learned about these three prophecies. And uh, I hope if you, if you didn't catch it, please go on in line and, and listen to that and uh, get caught up with us. But tonight, we're going to be in chapter 24. And we're gonna, it's a long chapter, and it's kind of a story. And we're going to kind of skip a few places in there. You can read that on your own. But tonight, we're going to see that God has and always will have a desire to be at the center of every marriage amongst mankind. Do you agree with that statement? He has a desire. He designed marriage specifically for him to be involved in. So I want to just say tonight, whether you're here, whether you're with your spouse tonight, whether you're divorced, or whether you believe that you desire to be married again and you're praying and waiting, or whether you're here and your spouse has gone home to be with the Lord, I want you to reflect on your marriage. And I want you to, to I want you, God's going to illuminate some things about your marriage. And if you've lost your spouse, I want you to remember how you met, how God led you. Maybe you weren't a Christian. Maybe you were. Maybe one was, one wasn't. Both of you were. And I'm going to share a couple stories about me and my wife. But I want you to Put your marriage, think about your marriage when we go through the, this word tonight. I've titled this teaching, Place, Placing God in Our Marriage on Day One. And it kind of explains itself, doesn't it? If we're in a marriage, from day one that we're married, if we place God at the center of our marriage at the very beginning, and we're willing to honor God's word and to subject ourselves and submit to the word of God and apply it to our marriage. Do you know that God's plan is that marriage would last a lifetime? And the Bible says that God hates divorce. This isn't a statement to make you feel condemned if you've been divorced a couple times. Life happens. I get it. You know, we all have issues. We've all made mistakes. So this isn't a night where you're here and you're going to be condemned. I don't want you to feel that way. But I want you to look at the Word of God, and it's going to apply to you somehow, some way, and God's going to speak to you. Amen? And so I want to, I want to start off by saying, I think i got a picture up there. And that's a picture of two, except I don't see the diamonds. I don't know what the deal is there with the ladies ring there. But, but that picture says a lot, doesn't it? Those rings... That marriage, that couple, you know, marriages are founded on the Word of God. And it started at the very beginning of Genesis in chapter 2 where God was very clear. We know that God has given us His powerful Word to be the foundation of every marriage under heaven. And the question is, church, tonight, do you believe that statement? Do you personally, not for you to just say, yeah, pastor, I believe, but I want you to really ask yourself that question. Ask your spouse that question. Look at each other and say, do we really believe that God's powerful word, that our marriage is founded on that? Now, I'm not trying to give you to, to, to decide whether you're perfect at, at following God's word, right? There's no perfect marriage, amen? Can we just get that out? There's no perfect marriage, none, because we're imperfect people. But if a, if a marriage is founded on God's word, there's so many benefits 
And I promise you that if we, if we obey God's word and we found our marriage on the word, powerful word of God, it will last till death do us part. And that's what God has said. The question is, do we believe it so much that we are willing to honor God's word and submit our marriages under God and his word? And God's word gives us a couple scriptures that I want to remind you of. But before Michelle puts that up, listen to this. God created and united marriage as one flesh. God joined husband and wife in marriage. There is no substitution whatsoever. It's one man, one woman. And then thirdly, God placed his authority over every marriage. That's his desire. Now look up on the screen. And we see this in scripture. You can see in Genesis 2.24, the very beginning of the book, it says this is why man leaves his father and mother and is what? United to his wife, they become one flesh. And I feel like this is kind of a marriage conference because sometimes problems in marriages Notice the words say they leave their mother and father. Sometimes it's hard for us, maybe you're in the room, that we understand that we leave mom and dad and we cling to our spouse. That means that we are fully committed as one flesh to our spouse. It doesn't mean that we don't answer the mother-in-law's phone. It doesn't mean that we ignore our previous family. But what it does mean is when the rubber meets the road, you choose your spouse over your in-laws or your mom or your dad. Anybody there, am I preaching? Right? And, and I don't want you elbowing your neighbor and we're causing quarrels. <laughs> and then you're lining up for marriage counseling. But the word says, if you do this, then your in-laws will never be a problem. Well, Pastor David, I've been divorced maybe once or twice, and we have kids together, and so I have to communicate, and my spouse gets jealous about that. Then, then what we have to do is we have to work extra hard at trusting our spouse, don't we? There should be no jealousy whatsoever if you have to communicate for, because for the sakes, sake of kids or grandkids for your previous marriage. And there should be healthy perimeters, shouldn't there? There should be healthy perimeters put in place with those in-laws, with those previous marriages, that when they try to cross that perimeter that you and your spouse set up, it's kind of like that aisle. It's like stay out of the aisle and everything's going to be fine. That's our aisle. That's our marriage aisle. But it's when they cross over and nobody addresses it. In love, but it's like, look, you can't, you can't do this. We're not married anymore. We, we, we failed it, it, it following God or whatever the issue is. I don't know what it is. But we have to be careful. This is why this verse is so applicational because it says when you leave your mother and father, you're united to your wife and you become one flesh. One flesh. I love three-legged races. Maybe I'll have Pastor Joey do that on the uh, Chili Fest. Three-legged race. You're in life together forever. And it's you and your spouse, and nobody should interfere with that whatsoever. It shouldn't cause quarrel and fighting. Look at Mark 10, 9. It says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I could go on all night about that. There are so many ways that Satan likes to infiltrate 
into a marriage, right? And it's always deception, isn't it? It's always that private message. I, I recently, I, I used to go to um, uh, uh, great friends of ours. In fact, they were at the funeral on Saturday. Will, you, you know uh, who they were. They sat at your table. I, I don't know where you sat, guys sat, but you probably know who they are. And, and they're going to another church, but we're great friends. And we've been sharing information that we have through this whole COVID thing and, and, and just trying to help people in the community and, and praying with people. And, and we're, we're just friends. But what happened was, I said, I'm an RN. I worked in the cardiac unit and she was an RN. She's retired. I'm retired. And so we have this thing in common and it's medical. And we talk about medical things. And one day, I don't even know if you know this. I don't think you know this. No, but this is good because I put a perimeter in. Because we were communicating a lot. Now, a lot of times, a lot of times she was in our, we had her and her husband on FaceTime in our living room. Do you remember that night? So we do that. But also, it was like we were sending information and here's contact and this and that. We were talking and, and trying to learn. But I, I did, she called me one time on private message, and I just said, you know, I just have a check in my spirit. And I said, does your husband know, like, that you call or that I call or, or that we're sharing? Because we were innocent. As God before me, I was innocent. We're, and she was too. But it was the illusion, it was that deception that if we kept that kind of communication with not our spouses, that it wasn't really, really healthy. You following me or are you looking at me like I'm in an adulterous affair? I'll have you come up and tell your story. So, so again, see, it, it, it was innocent, but here's the thing. What happens? If something crossed the line. What happens if her husband got offended, read a text or read a private message and, 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 and made something out of nothing? How do you explain that? Or what if my wife read her text and, and took it the wrong way? Because how many of you got in a text and you go, they're mad at me, I'm going to blast them. And they're like, what are you talking about? Well, there's a tone on that text. No, texts don't have tone. You just misunderstood it. That's why I like the phone, to be honest. <laughs> Anyhow, 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head, this is important tonight. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Do you see that layer of, of authority in, in the org chart there? As Christ is the head? Christ is the head of the marriage. But men, I want your attention because we're going to go to R&R &R and we're going to talk about stuff like this probably. And I'm going to pretend like the ladies aren't in the room for a moment. But men, if you're married, pay close attention to this. The head of every man is Christ. The Bible is very clear that wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wife. But this in, Genesis, or in 1 Corinthians says that the, the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every wife is her husband. Men, can I say to you, if you are not living for Christ, if you are not submitting yourself to Christ first, then how do you know how to lead your wife in a proper way? Y'all are quiet. I'm going to do an altar call. But do you understand, men, what I'm saying? Right? 
And this is how God designed our marriage. And, and this is what we all, we all have to work on, including myself. I got to work on that. And Christ is the head of the marriage. It's a biblical principle. You all see the triangle, Christ at the center, wife, husband at the bottom, right? But in Genesis 24, we're going to see, we're going to look at two witnesses. We're going to see a witness of two men that make intentional choices to see that they obey God by bringing Abraham's son, Isaac, his marriage under God's word from day one, from the very beginning. You see, and I got to catch you up from chapter 22. There's a few things that happened, like Abraham's wife, Sarah, died. That's a big deal, don't you think? So she died. In fact, she was 120 years old when she died. And, and, and her and Abraham are in the land of Canaan. Remember, God said that he would give this land to Canaan. You're a foreigner, but I'm going to give this land to you, right? So they're in Canaan. Sarah dies. She's 120. Isaac is about 40 years old right now. And I can just think it's like he's living in dad's house and it's like he's a basement dweller. It's like, son, you need to get out of here and go get married. Like, why are you still here, right? But back in the day, family was, was, was huge and households were consisted of many relatives. And it was about normal for 40 years old. Remember, they lived a little bit longer in this time. But Isaac's about 40 years old. The other thing that I want to point out, because the first verse is going to show you this, Abraham actually dies at the age of 175 years old. And so right now, about this moment, chapter 24, he's about 35 years out from death, so let's do the math. It's really hard algebra or calculus. He's 140 years old right now, isn't he? And so he's 140 years old. You imagine this dad, and I think that there's a tone that he might be a little ill, and we're going to see that because he chooses to send his house servant out to find his son's wife. Traditionally, back in the day, what would happen is, is the parents would, would find it was, it was a set-up marriage. Some cultures still do that. Some religions still do that. But the parents were to pick the wife for their son and, and, and vice versa, or they would give their daughter if they were in agreement, right? And so this is what was set up. But this is interesting uh, because... Abraham is at an older age. Let's go ahead and read verse 1. Genesis 24, verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had. Now, stop right there, and I want to remind you, well, who is this manservant that Abraham trusted with all of his possessions and all of his affairs? I have it up on the screen. You remember in Genesis chapter 15, where we found Abraham was complaining to the Lord because him and Sarah had not had a kid. And, and they're getting older, and they were getting up there in age. Remember, he was like 90-some years old when they had their first son, Ishmael, and Sarah was like going, I'm old. I, I can't have kids anymore. And we see this that Abraham was complaining, but look what he said. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Elizer. Elizer's going to be one of these guys in this story that we're going to talk about. And he says, but Elizer of Damascus, and Abraham said, you have given me no children, so my servant in my household will be my heir. So 
Eliza is now a little older. He's been faithful to Abraham. Sarah's gone, and I imagine he's taken on much duty now for Abraham at his age. And so traditionally, if they didn't have children, Eliza would inherit everything. And so he's very trustworthy, and he's been with the family for a long time. There's a love there. But look at verse, the rest of verse 2. Abraham says to Eliza, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Now, I want to explain something for a minute. I've never heard that. Has anybody read that before? Put your hand under my thigh. All right. I haven't either. But what I, what I looked at, here's the, here's the thing that that they're saying here. That custom, what Abraham is about to do, understand, is that he's going to give his servant many, of many years probably one of the most significant and most important tasks that he's ever given. It has nothing to do with his possessions. It has nothing to do with his servants. It has nothing to do with any of the household things. He is now going to task him with the most important thing that is going to change why we're even in this room tonight. He has to find Isaac a wife, but not just a wife. He's got to find Isaac a godly wife. And Abraham can't do it. And he's going he's to send his house servant out to do this most important task. And I want to explain this thigh thing. In Hebrew culture, there was a practice, and it was, if someone asked you, to put their, swear that you put your hand on your thigh and swear. What that really meant, it was a symbol of lordship or authority. Obviously, Abraham was very wealthy. He was very established. He had authority and lordship. But the placing of one hand, someone's hand under someone's thigh, is considered an oath of allegiance. Now, it's intimate. Man, I'm just talking to you like, John, you want to come up here? And like, I would like, no. Right, that's intimate. But it's a sign of intimacy and loyalty to his master. And it was very intimate and it, was, it, it meant something. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like something small. It was very significant. And they only required that if, if it was something very intimate and something of great value or great uh, importance, extreme importance. But it was a sign of submission to authority. Now, you think about that, we kind of share that same culture today, don't we? Has anybody ever in, been in court and testified? Yeah. Well, what do you do? Is it, is it important? You can answer that. I'll wait. <laughs> Tell them I said hi. <laughs> By the way, Michelle, love to have you guys back. Skip Michelle, I miss you. Good to have you back. You went to the retreat, right? Awesome. Did you have a good time? Good. So glad to have you here. Um, but uh, so where was I? See the phone rings. Yeah, there you go. Anybody been in court? Is that important? Are you, are you swearing on the outcome of someone's life? Prison, death sentence, future? What do they have you do? Right hand up or depending on what state these days. Or you put your hand on that Bible. A lot of people put hand on my heart. I promise you, whatever it is, right? And so this is our same tradition, um, and it has significance. Let me ask you a question. Uh, how many of you remember when business deals between two men used to be a handshake and your word? 
Let me see. Raise your hand. There you go. Wasn't those fun times? What? Why did you do that, though? Why was that enough? Because your word was your word, wasn't it? It was your integrity. It was your character. It was your reputation. And I wish we could go back to that. In fact, the New Testament says in James chapter 5, verse 12, it says, above all my brothers, it kind of did away with this whole swearing on, on the oath, but he says, but above all things, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your what? Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation you know where this world is today unfortunately we have to sign a contract to even do anything you've been to the doctors lately 78 pages sign here i'm like what is this i don't even they're like we're ready for you well i got to read the other 78 pages and sign my name to this what are you making me sign right or we have a team of attorneys you got to sign all this stuff to even have anything happen there's no integrity and there's no value but it would be nice to go back to where your word was your word and your promise was your promise and so what's so serious that abraham made this his servant eliza promise is his commitment to the task now let me explain this look at the rest of verse three first that what does he say well what's the commitment that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the canaanites among who I am living. But you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. So the question here at hand is, and I love you guys being Faithful Wednesday because you've been going through the book since chapter one. You know this. Where was Abraham from? Anybody remember? I know, it's a tough name. Genesis chapter 11 tells us that Abraham was from the, the small area of Ur, U-R, Ur, or otherwise known as Chaldees. Basically, it was near Haran, okay? Now, here's something important. Haran is 900 miles away from where they are right now. And he's saying, hey, uh, Eliza, you got to go 900 miles and go find my son, a wife. Now, why didn't he want the Canaanite women to be, why was that not suitable for his son Isaac? Well, after all, Abraham did live in Canaan, and he didn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman, and basically because he knew what the Canaanite women were all about. Well, what were they about, Pastor David? Great, glad you asked. You see, they, they were as far from God as any woman could possibly be. The Canaanite culture was wicked, and the women had a reputation of following false gods, little g, false gods. And when they followed these false gods, they would commit and submit themselves to heinous acts, orgies, and, and detestable things. So they were not that girl that you bring home to dad, all right? They were just not that kind of girl. And, and here's the key right here, though. What Abraham was concerned about was that these women, that if he married a Canaanite woman, found somebody that was beautiful, fell in love because guys are visual. She's beautiful, but she's from Canaan. So what? She's beautiful. Yeah, but she's from Canaan. She's going to steer you away from the one true and living God. 
And son, if that happens, then every promise that God has ever given me, given our family, given our inheritance, and given you and I in this room, is gone. And I'm going to show that to you. But 2 Corinthians 6.14, you see it. You've heard this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So there's that warning again. Now, I am happy to tell you, I used to be embarrassed by this, but I'm not embarrassed anymore. I'm happy to tell you that I got saved at 35 years old. My wife gave her life to Christ when she was a teenager, probably over here with Pastor Joey. And, you know, she was listening to Joey's preaching and go, man, I want this Jesus and I'm saved, right? But then teenage years happen. Come on, you with me? Anybody been those teenagers? Get saved and then you go, ah, teenage years. Yeah. And so my wife, we were dating and uh, we were in high school and uh, we, left, we left Ohio uh, after we graduated. And we came down here and we lived together. I wasn't saved. In fact, I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. She never preached Jesus to me. She, she loved me. She told her mom when, she, when we went out on our first date that, that this is the guy I'm going to marry. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty wicked. But she loved me. But she was a Christian. You see? So, she, so we, we come down here and we live together. We told our parents that we weren't getting married. I wanted to try her on to see if it worked out before I committed, right? And she allowed that to happen. And so we didn't know any different. She didn't know any different. Then, then we got married, I don't know how a pastor married us. Did we lie on the application? Did I say I knew Jesus? Or did he not carry just one of his honorarium? <laughs> but he married us. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, okay, we'll come to your church. Right? But we got married. And then the years go on. And I can sadly tell you that my sin, me rejecting God, that, that took my wife into things that a Christian had no business doing. And you see that we were unequally yoked. But just like you and me in this room, but therefore go the grace of God. But therefore the grace of God, there I go, right? Therefore go I. And God had a plan. And he had a story. And God started turning the heat up on me. And my wife increasingly said, we need to go to church. And I'm like, mm, Jerry Falwell got popped. All right, we need to go to church. Mm, all they want is money. Look, that, that pastor got stepped down because he embezzled millions of dollars. We need to go to church. Mm, and I would just start naming all these preachers that were falling. See, the truth is, is that I didn't want to stop sinning myself. And so I pointed the sin out of all the religious people that I knew that were leading churches. And I loved doing it. And I was a professional at it. But the truth is, the truth is, is that I didn't want to stop, I didn't want to stop sinning. 
I liked my life. I liked my pleasure. And she loved me enough to stay with me. And I used to tease her. Well, you just sit in your little golden chair with Jesus, and you can be in heaven, and I'll go to hell, and I'm happy about it. And then God got a hold of me. God got a hold of me, and he had a plan. And then for our, one of our anniversaries, because I was saved and because I was baptized in the ocean, approximately the same place that I proposed to her many, 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 many years ago. We're married over 30 years now. But the place that I proposed her on the beach is the same place that I asked one of our pastors uh, to redo our wedding vows. And guess what, church? It meant something then. And the Holy Spirit came in. I mean, the Holy Spirit was here. But what we did is we submitted our marriage and we put God at the center of our marriage for the first time in our lives. And I can tell you it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. It's been a better ride. And I'm thankful and I'm grateful. If you're here tonight or you're listening online and you have a spouse that does not know the Lord, my message to you is you pray. Because my wife never stopped praying for me. And she loved me even through my wickedness. She loved me through my hate. She loved me through my hurt. She loved me through my anger. She loved me. She loved me like Christ. And she taught me when I got saved, I realized that she was really living a lifestyle of following Jesus. Like my eyes were open. And so if you're here tonight, your spouse isn't saved, don't give up. My wife waited a long time, 14 years, and God got a hold of me. So if you're in that marriage, don't give up. God can be God. We're going to see that as we move forward. Point number one I want you to write down, placing God in our marriage means that both husband and wife need to submit to God as the head of their marriage. Take a picture of that. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, about four more chapters forward. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to show you how Abraham is absolutely following God. And there's not a better example of why he's going to send Eliza all the way back 900 miles away to go to his clan to find a wife that's suitable as God would have it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, you can catch up. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God was giving the nation of Israel his instructions, his law. Verse 1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, chapter 7, the Hittites and the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the who? The Canaanites, the Parasites, I mean Perizzites, <laughs> the Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. Verse 3, you shall not what? You shall not intermarry with them 
giving your daughters to their sons or what? Or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Look at verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Look at the consequences. If Abraham made it easy on his house servant, eh, just go into town, bring a beautiful woman home. It'll work out. What does God say? If you do this, if you intermarry with a Canaanite, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. Turn back to Genesis 24 and listen to what I have to say. It's very important that Abraham's children maintain marriages with like-minded believers. That is why the whole history and the inheritance of the lineage of Jesus was developed. Isaac's seed with his wife that Eliza, we're going to see, brings home is the descendants of Christ. They would be born. God promised Abraham that's what would happen. And God kept his promise only because Abraham followed God's word. And church, let me say about your marriage tonight, if you follow God's word, God will keep his promises for your marriage. If you follow his word, he'll keep his promise. Just like he's keeping his promise that we're going to see. Look at verse 5, Genesis 24, verse 5. We're going to go quicker. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said, for the Lord of the God of heaven who brought me out of my father's househood and my native land, who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son out there. Verse 8, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. The, the point that I want to make here is, is he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife. That's really important. Because what we see is Isaac's father going, I'm going to be praying. God's going to deliver you to identify a wife. An angel is going to be with you. And he boldly tells his servant, God will direct you on this mission because the Lord, an angel, will be with you. And so look at verse 10. Then the servant left, taking with him tens of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, near him, made his way to the town of Nahor. Now, Nahor is basically Haran. It's right in there. If you look on the map, it's the same area. 900 miles later, he had the camels kneel down near the well outside of town. It was toward the evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. Verse 12, then he prayed. Interesting. Then he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. So I want to point out here, how many of you want to be in Eliza's shoes? Travel 900 miles with my camels, 
go to a crowded town in which Abraham had not been there for almost 100 years and try to pick out his clansmen when you've never even met anybody from his family. Would you like to do that? That's like going to New York City and find a diamond in a rough, huh? Or a needle in a haystack. And yet the servant loved Abraham so much that he wanted to honor him. He wanted to honor God and honor his servant. And what does he do? He prayed. God, I can't do this on my own. I can't find this wife. I know what's on the line. I know what God told Abraham. And God, I need your help. And so he prayed. And he asked God to accomplish the task that only God could accomplish. Not him. And he asked God to reveal the woman to him so that his decision would be the right one. He would bring back the right wife for Isaac. And church, I want you to apply this principle to you tonight. Maybe you're here, you've been divorced, or you've been widowed. Maybe you want to get married again. Maybe you're saved. Maybe, maybe you weren't saved, and now you have a new life. Maybe you want to be married again. And I would just say this is a great application for you. If you want to be married again, pray that God will show you specifically the spouse that he has for you. Don't operate in desperation. Don't operate in loneliness. Wait on God. Be patient. Pray. God will choose your spouse. Trust him. Pray to him. He knows what he's doing. Maybe you're married here today and you're with your spouse or your spouse is at home and maybe you have decisions to make and you both need to be in unity. Can I just kindly say, put God at the center of your marriage. He will speak to you in unity for those tough decisions. Go to God. He's at the center of your marriage. He's gonna speak to the husband. He's gonna speak to the wife and he's gonna speak unity and then your decisions are gonna be easier to make. Don't wrestle with your spouse over things that are major. The minors, I get it. But the majors, I've made many mistakes. And to be truthful, my wife bailed me out of those mistakes. Because I, I just, I was impatient. And God gave me a spouse to help me, to be my helpmate, to help me make better decisions, to be more patient. And God will speak to you both. Second point I want you to write down, placing God in our marriage means that we need to ask, we need to seek God through prayer in all decisions. Whether you're looking for a spouse, whether you need to make a decision, whether there's difficulty in your life, seek God through prayer. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 is continued. It's a continued prayer. And look what I look what Eliza prays. He says, see. I am standing behind this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, I find this passage to be pretty funny, and I'm going to tell you why. It's, it's pretty humorous, and I'm going to confess to you that sometimes 
I pray this kind of prayer with God. I, I, I pray this prayer. I say, God, if you, and then I give him this task, if you do this, then I'll know that I'm supposed to do this. Or if you show me this, or if you do this, or if you do that, I tell God what I want him to do. And then I challenge him and go, and if you do that, then I'll have my answer of what I'm going to do, God, right? I remember a time, the pastors know this about me, we're very close. There was a time that I was in ministry, and I became exceedingly impatient, and I felt like I hit a dead end. I felt like God wasn't using me. And I was having this wrestling match with God, and I said, God, I'm done. I've done all I can in, in this assignment that you've given me. I don't see how you can use me anymore. And I said, if you don't do something, and if you don't do something quick, then I, I'm, I need a new assignment from you. Or better yet, God, I'm going to get impatient. I'm just going to assign myself to another ministry. Or, or you know, you, you get what I'm saying. And the truth is, church, when we come to God and pray to him like that, it's not prayer it's negotiating. It's negotiating. Remember who we're praying to. God can do anything. God doesn't need us to tell him what to do. God can answer our prayers right now. God can answer our prayers the way he wants to answer our prayers. God can reveal his will for our lives the way he wants to reveal his will. And I've learned that. And the truth is, God, on behalf of my ignorance of negotiating with him, Donna, you know what this is all about. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. You blessed our, you blessed our staff. Good to have you. Donna was with me. She knew. And God just moved. God just moved. And God just launched a whole new reason to, to be excited. And despite myself, God still chose to tell me what to do next. Do I have anybody in the house that is thankful that despite you, God, God kept you faithful, God moved? Can I see the hands? Give God a hand. Amen? That's what God does. That's how God does things. That's how God moves. That's why we can take these people in the Bible and we can go, that's me. And we can learn. Nevertheless, let's see how God responds to Eliezer on behalf of his prayer. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished praying, before he was even done praying, uh-oh, Rebecca, her name's Rebecca, she came out with a jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of, Beth- of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nair. Notice though that Eliza Eliza doesn't know that this, doesn't know this information for it had not been revealed to him. But look at verse 16. The woman was what? She was very beautiful. She was a virgin. No man has ever slept with her. 
She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. Verse 17, the servant hurried to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord, she said. And she quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she had given him a drink, she said, get ready. I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well and draw more water and drew enough for all of this camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. I think that many of us see God moving on our behalf and yet we, we still, our faith is a little wavered at times. And this is what we see here. He's like, okay, she did this. Like, come on, that's a miracle. That's like if I walk out of here tonight and I go, some guy comes up to me and says, um, would you like a, a, a 1965 red convertible Mustang? I'll give it to you for $1. I go, God, if you do that, then, then I'll just move down here, right? I'm waiting for a sign, you know? And then all of a sudden, that happens in the parking lot, right? Like, if that happens, I, I have all the faith I need to go, that's the girl. But notice, he's like, I need more. I need more proof, Lord. Look at verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room at your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, bore to Nair. And she added, we have, pretty, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and the faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on a journey to the house of my master's relatives. And that's what it took. He realized that out of all the women, the most beautiful woman, virgin, pure, godly has just been delivered to him and it's a miracle to him church write this down when we see god when we seek god in prayer expect that he will answer remember to praise him before during and after he delivers for you amen I'm going to skip some verses tonight for time, but I want to let you know what's happening. Rebecca took Eliza to her household to meet the relatives, and Eliza told Rebecca's brother Laban the whole story and why there were there were why there he gave witness to how he prayed and how God answered prayer and selected a wife for Isaac. But look at verse 50. Go all the way down to verse 50. When this witness testimony was given to him, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. 
Notice what's happening here, and I think we can apply this to our lives. When God reveals his divine will for our lives, oftentimes he will use others around us to bring about confirmation. Would you agree with that? You know, God will either answer you through prayer, God will either answer you through the word, or God will answer through circumstances, but God will also look around you. This is your family. These are believers in Jesus Christ, and when they see things going on, and sometimes God even gives you a message for somebody else, and it brings about that exact confirmation. That confirmation that, to be honest, church, sometimes we need that to push us over the faith line, don't we? We see things lining up, and then someone comes along and says to you, this is what I feel like the Lord told me to tell you. And that's what crosses you to the finish line of faith. This is what happened here. And this is, this is what was needed in order to bring Isaac his wife. Now, caution, word of caution. Sometimes, not all the time does God use people around you to bring about confirmation of the Lord's will. What's an example of that? Noah. Remember Noah building the ark? God gave him instructions. He heard the will of God. Build the ark. What was everybody around him saying? You're nuts. You're crazy. It hasn't rained here for years what a joke you are. That's your God, you see? But yet God's will was done. And sometimes we have to walk in faith without any confirmation, just like Noah did. And church, that's hard to do sometimes. So what do we have to do about it? We have to develop that relationship where we know how to hear God's voice, and we know how to respond, and we know how to trust. Now, as we start to wrap it up, I know all the ladies in this room are like, hello, doesn't Rebecca like get a vote in this? Like, I'm glad you men have it all together, that I'm worthy enough to go to a strange man 900 miles away. Ladies, is that true? You want to, you want to, you want to input on this, huh? <laughs> She's like, yeah. Well, look at verse 57. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? And what did she say, ladies? She said, I will go. Now everybody's in unity, and they're in unity with God. Abraham's in unity, Eliza is in unity, Rebecca is in unity. But what about Isaac? After all, she's his wife. Look at verse 62. Scoot down to 62. Now Isaac had come from Bear Leah Roy, for he was living in Negev. And he went out to the field one evening to pray. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. So i got to bring this whole romance novel to a big, big end, right? I'm going to create this romantic setting. So just imagine this. Ladies and men, some men are very romantic. But here, here, this is for all the romantics out here. Here's how the story ends. 
The sun is setting. The violins are playing in the background. You could hear them. And Isaac looks lonely and discouraged, and he's asking God, God, when will you bring me a beautiful wife? In fact, there's probably a tear in his eye as he looks at the sunset, anticipating another lonely night. <laughs> Look at verse 64. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac, and she got down from her camel, and she asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and she covered herself. Ladies, if you wore a veil over your face when you walked down that aisle at your church or wherever you got married, that's where it came from. That's right there. That's biblical. And right before you get presented to your husband, the veil comes over. Look at verse 66. And then the servant told Isaac all he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. And he did what? He married Rebekah. So she became his wife. And he did what? He loved her. Now as we close, I want to say this. I told you a little bit about my story. My marriage. My life. I don't know your story. I don't need to know your story. God knows your story. Some of you are married. Some of you are on your second marriage, maybe your third marriage. Some of you are divorced and you're single, but you do desire to get married again and you're praying for a godly spouse, but yet you're nervous to step into that again. I want you to write this last point down. Placing God in our marriage means we trust God. We trust that God has given us exactly who he has chosen us to be with for life. Can I hear an amen on that one? When God chooses your spouse and he aligns it, whether you were saved, not saved, both got saved, whatever it is, you need to trust that God specifically appointed a spouse and when we invite him into the center of our marriage God can do anything maybe you're here and the Lord took your spouse as I said this morning or earlier today maybe he took your spouse home and you can't wait to meet your bride or your husband in heaven what I want you to do tonight if that's you is I want you to reflect on your marriage together Cherish the things that God has supernaturally done to keep you married this whole time. And I've met so many people that lost their spouse. A lot of, a lot of ladies in Melbourne, and they would sit together in the sanctuary, and, and they would tell me that they lost their loved one, and they said, my husband's in heaven, and I'm going to go home to him. I know that's not the case for everybody, but what, what great admiration that I had for them because they loved him. They loved her. She loved him. And they waited till death do us part. So I'm going to ask you to do something. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer tonight? God, you've given us biblical principles from your word. 
Lord, your word is given to, well, lead our marriages. Father, your word is given to empower our marriages. Lord, your word is given to sustain our marriages. Lord, we just come to you tonight. We ask you to help us place you in the center of our marriages. Help us to read your word. Help us to apply your word to our marriages when we need it most. For those who desire to be married supernaturally, go before them. Make it clear who that godly spouse would be. And that can only come from you. Help those that are waiting to be patient and watch what only you can do as we saw what only you could do with Rebecca and Isaac. Lord, we see your faithfulness. Lord, for every marriage in this room, including my own, Lord, some days if we're truthful, we feel like, man, this is rough. I want to throw in the towel. But Lord, we come to you and we offer our marriages to you. Even if you're online right now and you're listening. Lord, we lift our marriages to you. And we say, Lord, do everything you can to keep us together. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, move upon our marriage. Restore, heal, help us to drop our pride. And Lord, we trust you. And we stand on the foundation that if we, if we believe in your word and we apply it, that marriage could be lifelong. We commit this to you tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of Intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 1045 a.m., and Wednesdays at 630 p.m.